Welcome to episode 328 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Well, it happened again. The time that I'm recording this, it was a couple weeks before the episode is released. I tested positive again for COVID. It's hit our family now for the second time. Now, we feel very fortunate because we're having fairly mild symptoms, although it's slowing me down. <laughs> and it brings me to mind two things. Uh, one, this is a public service announcement that we really should avoid using the phrase in our marketing post-pandemic or do anything to insinuate that it's over. Because while the number of deaths and hospitalizations has definitely gone down, I still know a number of people who are very concerned about themselves or a loved one getting COVID because their immune system is compromised. So for them, this is still very much an active thing. And I've had a loved one pass away in the last year um, from COVID, which again, we weren't expecting this to happen. So that's one thing. And the other is if you have a business and you're the only reason money comes in, you really have to come up with systems. So it makes me pause and think about, well, what if I can't deliver X, Y, Z? How will I still get things done? So I'm really proud of the fact that I built some brand strength and I have other people who can step in and help with some of the things that I'm doing. But keep considering what you can do to kind of elevate your team so that you can take time off and rest if you need to. And now on to this week's interview. Today's guest helps organizations and individuals get from where they are to where they want to go. She engages employees, develops leaders, and helps people find meaning on a daily basis, a concept she calls breadcrumb legacy. She's a speaker, teacher, and coach. After a 30-year career as a college professor of business management and leadership, she built her own business to share what she's learned. She's the host of the podcast, Becoming a Sage, which interviews thought leaders about life and work wisdom and writes a column for training magazine called Leading Edge. She's the author of six books. Her latest book is Breadcrumb Legacy, How Great Leaders Live a Life Worth Remembering. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Jan Freed. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm honored, Robbie. I'm honored. Thank you so much for joining us from your place in Des Moines, Iowa. It's thrilled to have you. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks, but the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I developed a definition of leadership as someone who's in a position to influence the lives of others. It could be positive influence, it could be negative influence. So, you know, when I use the word leadership, I used to always think, oh, positive, wonderful, you know, I held an endowed chair in leadership and character development and how wonderful. But, you know, we all have probably worked under the influence of a bad leader. And so with that definition, it includes parents, teachers, coaches, pastors, anyone who's in a position to influence the lives of others. I appreciate that nuance. Yeah. Your second part is, you know, when did you realize you were a leader? Um, you know, I think it took me a long time because I've been teaching I love to write about it, talk about it, teach about it, uh, you know, 
Um, but to actually be, do it, you know, I think it's hard. So I never really thought, oh, I'm a leader. But when I look back on my life and I reflect, I was often the one initiating things and then trying to get people to come along with me, whether it was a church mission trip, which I did twice, an international mission trip. You know, honestly, I don't think it would have happened if I hadn't really kind of picked up the ball and, and ran with it and got others involved too. So, you know, whether it's profit or not-for-profit opportunities, um, when I look back, it's kind of like, well, I guess I did lead that. Or I, um, I think I always thought I could influence if I, uh, you know, through my energy or, or passion or focus. But um, so again, I, I, you know, I want to go back to if you're in a position to influence the lives of others, then you're in a leadership position. And yeah. I like to yeah. say that the most important person to lead is yourself. Mm, fantastic point there. This piece you're describing about how leadership is neither good nor bad. I, actually, I think you're the first person in all the episodes I've done who's really sort of driven that point home. And I think you're right that we often think of it of as benevolent leadership, right. but it's not always like, yeah. like if someone has the ability to have influence over other people's lives, impact their lives in some way um, that may or may not be taking people to where they want to go. Um, you know, it's, you could be influencing them to, to not get to the results they want. And so we are hoping to, to find this in a way that's broader, but to seek out people who are doing this for good and the idea that you have to start with yourself is like a really important message as well. Um, I'm really kind of curious, Jan, about who you were as a kid, because you have done all this work. You've worked leaders. You write about this. You teach this. You've been doing this work for so long. And I'm sort of curious about the trajectory that got you into this work to start with. But before we even get to the career side of things, like okay. what were you like as a kid on the playground, you know? Did you did you run for school office? Did you like lead the, I don't know, yearbook committee? Did you... <laughs> Te have teachers who recognize your potential like okay who were you well you know that's such an interesting story robbie because as you mentioned now i live in des moines iowa which is the capital of iowa but i grew up in a very small town in northern iowa and the, my my graduating high school class was 33 very small and so i like to say well i was in the top 10 percent, but you know and i was <laughs> But that's not really, it doesn't seem like it's telling you much. Um, and so it's interesting that you ask that question because I think when I was growing up, you had to do a lot of things because there were not, there were not a lot of other people. So I was on the softball team. I was on the, uh, I was a cheerleader for football and basketball. I was on the track team. Um, but when I look back, you know, I was president of the student council my senior year. Um, I was homecoming queen, but again, I only had 13 girls and there were five on the court. So, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not like there was in a sense, a lot of, there was not a lot of competition. Um, and my friend and I, we were editors of the yearbook our senior year. And so, but again, I, I don't think I looked at it like, well, I'm a leader. I think I looked at it like kind of default, like, okay, if we want these things to happen, then somebody has to do them. So I think I was somebody who, um, I do like projects. I've always liked projects. So like the yearbook would be a project. And so um, anyway, so that's kind of who I was. I don't think I, you know, and I don't think I really, I mean, I was close to some teachers because again, 
clearly teachers got to know you very well because class sizes were small. I mean, I got the history award uh, and I think I got a math award. Um, but again, there, there just weren't a lot, of, there were not a lot of people. So you had to, if you wanted something done, you had to get involved. You didn't have to necessarily lead it, but you had to get involved. So anyway, that's kind of who I was. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because someone else still might have in that position figured out someone else would take the lead. <laughs> you know, well, like, that's, like that's a good point. But you know, I think what's interesting is particularly the women in my class. And I said there were only thirteen. Okay, we had a class of thirty, and you know, there were thirteen women. Um, but all of the women were very, you know, kind of smart and take, uh, and they would take the initiative. I mean, we got things done. I think the women in the class much more than the men. And when you look at, I think almost all of us went to college and, you know, maybe a third of the men did. So, you know, I think, um, I think, I, you know, I think it was in a very good class of uh, motivated young women. And even so, <laughs> you're the one who ended up in the leadership, like the actual named leadership role, Jan. Oh, that's for, for many things, not everything. For many things, yes. But it is, it is kind of cool that that even if you weren't necessarily thinking this is like a big competition or like I had to beat out like 400 people mm -hmm. to do this. My graduating class was 1,300. Oh, wow. wow. So <laughs> yeah. um, a far different thing to be in the top 10%. Yeah, right, or right. Or top right, three right. as you were. <laughs> um, yeah. So Actually, I was tied. It was somebody was one. And then there was a tie for second for second. So I was tied for, yeah, whatever. Look at you. Yeah. <laughs> so this is really interesting. Like you've always kind of had this, like it has to get done. I'll just jump in. I, I like projects. You probably mm -hmm. also aren't just good at projects, but you're good at team building. I imagine because the things you're describing, particularly like a yearbook or even like class president, that's not just about an individual leader. It's about a leader inspiring a community to do something. Would you say that's the way you would think of it yeah, yourself early I, I on? I have a lot of energy. And when I get excited about something, I think I'm able to excite others. Mm -hmm. um, and right. I think that started at a very young age. But again, you know, I didn't look at it as a leader. It was just right. kind of, yeah, let's do this. And, you know, maybe that's the cheerleader because I was a cheerleader in college too. I think it's just that, you know, and when I say cheerleader, you know, when I was in college, it was more of a yell leader, pep leader. I mean, you know, I can do cartwheels, but not, not fancy gymnastics, like at a big university. Okay. But I think it's that, that pep, that spirit, that cheering, cheering people on is what, what I think I'm probably pretty good at. When I was in high school, I never, maybe once in early high school, I think I ran for a class position and didn't get it. But in my later years of high school, I got involved with the, uh, some activism and I needed some posters to be made. And I asked the person who was the advisor for the student council if they could help. And I ended up coming in, presenting my idea and having the student council create and spend money on <laughs> my materials. And I just laughed because like I had sort of this ability to have the sort of outside agitator advocate role. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't so good at like having the, the formal role but the influence was there, right? Like yes. I was influencing and I, yes. I'm like, wow, I got all these people who ran for positions to take up 
energy for my cause. Which is wonderful. That's wonderful. <laughs> so when you were 12, 13 years old, what do you think you were going to be when you grew up? Did you have some, was there like a clearly defined path or were you still figuring it out? Um, you know, probably figuring it out. I'm my parents, I'm a first generation college student. So when I look back, it doesn't surprise me at all that I ended up with a PhD and being a college professor, even though I fell into that. I didn't plan that either. But it doesn't surprise me when I look back because my parents really, really stressed education. You know, um, I remember, you know, actually, just to show you, my dad said, because uh, remember, I said I came from a small town and there were many people in my class who did not go to college. They either went to farm because I, we, I lived in a farming community or worked manufacturing. And I remember my dad said, now, listen, you're going to college. And if you get married when you're in college, we will not pay for it. So the only way we're going to pay for this is if you do not get married, you know, you need to finish college. Well, I didn't even have a boyfriend, so I don't even know where he was getting that. But it was like, but that was how important it was, you know. So um, I didn't. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. My dad was a banker. I mean, we grew up in a farming community, but he managed many, well, I say three small banks. And so it would, it just kind of seemed logical that I would go into some kind of business. So I ended up with a business management major. And then I actually, my first job out of college was in the largest bank in Iowa. Um, and I didn't really want to be in banking. And then I fell into teaching. And then that's when I, well, I actually got an MBA. Because again, I was single, so I had all this time on my hands and the bank was paying for it. So I was like, well, I might as well get an MBA. Mm -hmm. Well, then I fell into teaching and I thought, oh, I like this. Well, if you want to stay in teaching, you need a PhD. And then I started a PhD program and then I got married. And so, um, yeah, I didn't get married for a while. <laughs> you took your college advice very seriously. I going to school. I just kept going to school. You said, finish school first. And you're like, I'm going to get a terminal degree. Okay, right. now it's time to get married. Right. I mean, my dad even said to me, you know, it's okay now. You've got, you know, you've got two degrees. It's okay. You're working it's on it. It's okay now. Yeah. But um, I, uh, and then, you know, and then I, my, so I taught business management and leadership for 30 years. And now I teach a graduate course. Mm -hmm. for the University of Iowa, just one, one course. Well, it sounds um, like your father really influenced you even in his own, like what he did in the world. Like if he, he wasn't a farmer, even though you right. were living in a more rural area, he was a businessman. He was managing yes. three banks. Like yes. that's not a small job. Right. Um, so you are seeing some potential career options that maybe your peers couldn't sort of get at as easily because it wasn't right in front of them. Yeah. You know, Robbie, um, you're very perceptive. You know, that that's that's very true. Yeah. But it didn't mean that you knew exactly what you wanted to be. Yeah. <laughs> like it, the banking itself wasn't the the pull, yeah. um, even though you sort of ended up falling into that role uh, yeah. and you had some maybe some familiarity with it, but you knew pretty quickly it wasn't your thing. But yeah. this sounds like the skills you were acquiring were to help you really um, set yourself up for potentials. Or possibility. Yeah, no, I think that's really true. And, you know, again, I've always been kind of um, ahead of the time in terms of, you know, I would be definitely, you know, probably one of three women in my college courses. So now when I was teaching, they would be even or, you know, they'd be 50-50 or even a few more women than men. But when I was there, I mean, you know, there were three of us like in these courses. So they were very male dominated. And then all through my career, like, this is, might be hard for you to believe, but when I had my first child, which was 1986, um, 
they didn't have a maternity policy. So, I mean, because women had not, the women professors before me were single. <laughs> they so, just didn't do it. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, we've never, we haven't run into this before. It was 1986. I mean, we're not talking 1886. I mean, right. so I was always kind of this breaking ground, uh, pioneer, uh, you know, pioneer uh, ahead of my time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you think made you comfortable to do that? Because being the only of a few women in, uh, in, I mean, even like, you know, it wasn't quite half of your class, a very small class, you but yeah. 13 out of 30. So it was about parity, but yeah. here you are putting yourself in a role where you're like one of a few in a larger room of men taking business classes probably coming from more affluence if they're like being given the opportunity to go for an MBA, for instance, what, what sort of set you up? Where do you think you got the strength to, to be the only or the, or one of a few in a room like that? Well, you know, there I would give my mom credit because she didn't have a chance to go to college. She actually went to lab, kind of a lab tech school. So uh, not a nurse, but, you know, trained to do some lab work. And you know, my mom was very street smart. Uh, my dad lived to be 95 and a half and my mom lived to be 93, but she was very street smart and really tough. And she really had to kind of make her own way. And so I think I have this kind of rebel part of me, you know? And so when you talk about activism, you know, I, I've definitely done some marches and some protests and some, you know, I'm definitely a social justice person. Um, and you know, one, one example. So I got married in 1982. Yeah. We just have been married 40 years. And in 1982, I kept my name. I did not change my name. Wow. And a lot of my friends are like, you know what? This doesn't surprise me. You know, this makes sense, you know, but they didn't, I was like one of the only, one of the only, you know, in, in my peer group, uh, no one else kept their name. Not even really my best friend who is very smart and went on to law school. And, uh, but I said, no, I want to keep my name. And actually it was kind of interesting why I got that motivation. It's kind of out of laziness because, um, I was in working in the bank, I said, and, you know, people come in and they'd say, I was a personal banker at that time. And they came in and they said, well, we're getting, I'm getting married. So I have to change my checks. I have to change my, this, I have to change my name on this, my driver's license. And I said, well, do you have to do that? Well, you know, when you get married, if you're going to change your name, you have to do this. And I go, well, what if you don't change your name? Well, then you don't have to do any of that. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to change my name. Now, what's interesting is I said, we've been married 40 years. Well, I've had several friends get divorced during those 40 years and several of them who really found what I did kind of shocking, went back, you know, even after 25 years of marriage, went back to their maiden name. So wow. they're kind of like, you know, yeah. I think you were onto something, you know? I, I mean, that's definitely another example of you being ahead of your time. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, know. Where, I know exactly where you so were. Again, it wasn't like I intended to do that, but it was like, I just didn't see any reason to change my name. I had been known by this name all through college and beyond because I didn't get married until I was almost 28. So it's like, which now doesn't seem that old, but at the time, you know, 22 or 23 is probably the average. Um, 
but it was just kind of like, no, I've, I've been known by this name. Why would I want to change it? So anyway, it's just kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, you had a professional attachment with the yeah, name I as did. well. Like I did. And I only have a sister, so I don't have any brothers. So, and my sister kept her name. So, you know, it was kind of like, we want to carry on the, the family. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Do your kids have hyphens? They, my, my maiden name is each of their middle names, but it's nice. not hyphened. So they, and actually when they were little, I trained them to use their middle name along with their last name. So my name's Freed. My husband's name is Fisher. So my, I would say to my son, okay, you are Mac Freed Fisher. So, you know, here would be this little kid and he goes, my name is Mac Freed Fisher. But you know, like there's Mary Ellen, you know, Mary Ellen or Mary Beth or, you know. That's great. That's great. The name, the name is, is kept alive. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, these are great examples of sort of you finding your own path, but it also sounds like you, you got the business degree, you fell into banking because it was in your area, probably the best opportunity for sort of stepping out of what was sort of the common circumstance. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily your calling, but it got you in a different world. Yes. Yes. Once you were in that world and you realized it wasn't quite the right fit for you, how did you figure out your next move? Like what, yeah, what transpired or ignited a uh, change? I'll tell you, you ask very good questions. Well, once again, I was kind of a rebel. Okay. So here I am, I'm in the, I'm working, I'm, you know, personal banker. I'd gone through the management trainee program. I'm working in the largest bank in Iowa and we had to sign out to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, sign out to go to the bathroom. I mean, this just seems like prison. And I mean, they had these kind of rules that just made you feel like you were in a cage. And I am not that person. I am not that person at all. So, you know, do like first, like, so I even went to my manager. We would get 45 minutes for lunch. And this is a professional position, you know? But we can have a 15-minute break in the morning and a 15-minute break in the afternoon. So I went to my manager and I said, can I have an hour for lunch and I'll give up both breaks? No, no, we can't do that. And I'm like, you know what? This is not for me. So I started the MBA program and the bank, I said, was paying the tuition. And then um, my a, a college called me and said, well, we hear, hear you're getting done with your MBA. Would you want to teach? And I said, well, I've never taken any education courses. You know, oh, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Now, I always say to people, if you've ever had a bad professor in college, it's because they're not trained as teachers. Okay. I didn't know that at the time. So one of the things, like you mentioned my books, well, several of my books are, are written about teaching and learning, um, you know, one, one book subtitle is called shifting the focus from teaching to learning, because while I like what I, while I really like teaching, I'm passionate about learning. So my personal mission statement is to continue to learn and share what I'm learning with others. And I filter everything that I try, that I get asked to do through that lens. So am I going to learn something? And if I'm not going to learn something, you know, like I just got off the planning and zoning for the city, which is a, an, a, it's not an elected position. It's an appointed position. And I learned a lot and I was on it for 11 years, but I don't need to stay on it for 25 years. You know, I mean, it's like, okay, I learned a lot and now I want to learn something else. Mm-hmm. So that's why I have a podcast. You know, 
I don't make money on it. I mean, you know, um, you know, people will say, well, you make money on it. No, it costs me some money because I have to pay someone to post. Yeah. But I'm doing it to learn. That's my point. Yeah. So I feel like you, um, this opportunity to teach that came to you, I feel like your initial response is also a somewhat socialized gender wise response because men never question their capabilities or yeah, whether they have well, you're qualifications. Probably right. You're probably right. And I just didn't yeah. know that you didn't need to know about teaching. Yeah, so you're yeah. like, what? I'm not, I don't have an education background. Right. Right. But you had something to teach and, and, and you were giving, I mean, what, what led to that opportunity? Like, how did that person know well, about to you? Okay. So where I taught for 30 years is my alma mater. So somebody had said to them, you know, because I was a good student and somebody had said, she's, you know, getting her MBA, she's finishing her MBA. Now I couldn't have stayed teaching unless I got a PhD, but I could start teaching with an MBA. So it was, I had connections because they knew I was an alum. Yeah. Yeah. But you were a good student. You stood out. Someone remembered you. Yeah. They essentially sponsored you the way we yeah. now think about sponsorship. That's to, yeah, that's a good way. They to brought your name forward at the moment that people were debating a conversation about who should fill this role. Yeah. And they were like, well, yeah. I'm not giving it to, yeah. I will also say they were desperate because mm. the professor that I replaced was a real superstar. And he went, he left the, the, the college in the middle of the summer to take, to become Dean of uh, Texas Christian business school or something like that. And so he left to be a Dean. And so they had like a month to find somebody. So they were desperate at the time, but I had to prove myself in order to keep the job. Yeah. I actually taught at a college level um, for a few years. I have an MSW, which okay. for teaching is actually considered a terminal degree because oh, okay. so few have doctorates in the in the subject. Yeah. Um, and most who do don't teach; they go into policy. Right. Right. Um, but it, it, like you said, it's a very interesting experience. I had background um, as a community organizer and running workshops and professional speaking. So like I had to pull from all of that, but it wasn't like they said, do you have any teaching background? You know, right. like, um, I had, I had a lot of ideas around what does it mean to help communicate an idea in a way that people get it. Um, and it was a fantastic opportunity. It was actually on community organizing. It was a really great topic, but, uh, you know, at what point do you realize teachings you're calling and you decide to go for the doctorate? Like, did you know right away that this was a good fit? Well, early on, now again, I wasn't married the first year, and then I got married the second year, but we didn't have kids for a while. Um, it was just so fun. I just loved it. Now, remember, I was only like four years older than the seniors. So it was pretty challenging because, you know, here's this young, re you know, relatively short, blonde woman. Um, so the first couple of years were tough, but yet it was just like being, I always loved college. So it was like being back in college again. So then, you know, so I would say after about four years, then they said, you know, really, if you're going to stay here, you need to start a PhD program. So, yeah, so I would say three or four years. This is really interesting because just, you know, eight years earlier or six years earlier or something, you, you were among one of the few women in the class. Yeah, right. And now you are the professor of the class as probably women start to take the classes more and more, they're now seeing you up front. Like, did you have any female teachers when you were in school? Uh, 
not in business. Hmm. Now I went to a liberal arts college, so. But beyond outside of business classes, but not in the business classes. Wow, I mean, that's another example of you being really on that front edge of change. That's true. And being willing to break that barrier, including, I mean, being in a male dominated room of students who are very entitled. Right. <laughs> uh, and dominated department because I was the, the only department. in the department. Right. And, you know, then uh, let me see. So I had my first son in like four. I had my son right as I was kind of finishing my PhD. Um, but, you know, then no maternity policy. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like. Because they so hadn't thought of that. Yeah, kind of. I mean, even when I got promoted to full professor, there was no no bump in salary. Hmm. And I said, I don't understand this. And they said, well, you should be glad that you got promoted because you also got tenure. And, you know, not everybody gets tenure. And I'm like, well, you know, tenure and a, and a title does not pay your bills. You know, so anyway, it's, it's crazy. Now they get, I don't know, $5,000 to get promoted. But I was yeah. always just a little bit ahead, which was always kind of to my disadvantage, but whatever. But you also have that sort of activist streak. So you're probably were pushing true. for parity. That's and true. I, I, believe me, I I ruffled some feathers. Uh, in, in a but you stayed for 30 years. So you I also stayed. have the longevity. Yeah, I mean, change I doesn't happen. I say this all the time. Change within these major institutions, these like, you know, centuries long institutions doesn't change in a few years. It's decades. And so you really were there and not just witnessing, but also probably very much a catalyst for a lot of that change. And I also know probably students coming in today will feel like, ah, there's so much more work to do. Yeah. <laughs> With no, no appreciation right. of what's happened. I will say because of my situation, and we don't have enough time to go into it, but a maternity policy did come about because yes. of my first pregnancy and that situation. Yeah. Because right. there were other, by this time, there were other women, not in my department, but on campus. And they were very upset that because they were, you know, my age, actually a couple were a little bit older, but everybody was kind of thinking about starting a family. And they were like, so anyway, yeah. the women bonded together and made a policy happen. So, Which is an, an excellent example that women coming in today wouldn't have to think twice about whether or not there's a policy, but someone had to push yeah. for that, live, live, have that lived moment of it not being there and needing it. So, I mean, this is a great, great example of the work you did way back then that is still relevant today because it's some other policy that has to change. Like there's always some new forefront that we have to kind of push a little bit. You left a 30 year career teaching to focus on a business and you'd already had some writing under your belt, you already were, you know, published author and all, well, I, I say published author, I should say author, you're already an author. Yeah. What led to the decision to really shift that focus and start to build your own brand, your own, you're like, this is the thing I can offer as me, not as me associated with this, this, um, this institution. Again, that's a very good question. Well, first of all, I live in Des Moines and where I was teaching was an hour away. Okay. Now in a big city, you know, it could take an hour to get from Manhattan to Brooklyn, okay? But I was driving 50 miles each way. So I was driving 100 miles a day. So it's not like I was stuck in traffic. No, I was on the move. <laughs> but I was just, I had a long way to go. And so, in, like you said, I didn't plan to stay 30 years, 
but with three sons and as they grew up, um, the biggest benefit that we get in a small liberal arts college is what they call tuition exchange. Now it's not an exchange as much as it is a scholarship program. So, um, but I was fortunate that two of the three sons uh, selected a college on the list and they got the tuition um, um, scholarship. And the third one selected a college not on the list, a little more selective. He would have he would have received it also, but um, they were they're not in the exchange. Um, and that's a huge benefit. So the closer they got to college, it's like, well, I, I shouldn't leave now because that's my biggest benefit. You know, who would have thought when you were just getting started in this career and hadn't yet started a family and then you're just having your first kid that, you know, my wife and I joked about that because she was in higher ed when when we met and I moved into campus with her. She was a director of residence life. And we were like, OK, and then we started having kids while we were living there. And it was like. So is this is this the thirty year plan? You know, that's kind of what happened to you. And for us, it ended up not being that way. But the idea to to just sort of be in the role, you don't leave. I, I was in a job for ten years, and people would say like, "How do you do that?" I'm like, "You just you don't leave. Like it's yeah. actually pretty easy to stay in a job. Yeah, it's harder to leave jobs every three years. Yeah. But um, but that you got close enough that it made sense to hold on to that benefit, which is a fantastic benefit. But then what, what was the itch to build your own thing? I mean, I understand not necessarily staying in the institution, but you didn't move to another like in-house right. role. Okay. Well, first of all, I stayed most of the, most of the, the tenure I was there, I stayed because I loved it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I did get kind of an itch because it's like, you know, maybe I'd like to practice this instead of, but higher ed is, you know, tenure can be kind of a golden handcuff, you know, like ball and chain. Like how could you give up tenure because it's so job security, you know, now things are changing in higher education. It isn't like it used to be, but you know, how could you give that up because you work so hard to get it. And, you know, you practically have to kill somebody to lose tenure, you know? Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is it really is, at least in a small liberal arts setting, it really is a great lifestyle for kids because I didn't have the pressure to publish. Yes, I did publish, but I didn't have to. And I think that was an advantage. It was easier for me to publish when I didn't have to do that. Hmm. But yet um, I had summers really free to do that. I had flex flexibility. I mean, I didn't have to stay to five. I didn't have to be there till eight. It usually meant bringing work home. But, um, you know, I really was kind of the commander of my own destiny. I mean, I was my own boss. You know, as long as I'm performing well and my, my students are, you know, my students are learning and I'm getting good evaluations and um, you're, I'm my own boss. And that was really valuable, raising three kids 50 miles away. So my, my husband really was Mr. Dad. You know, he was Mr. Dad during those times or you know, Mr. Mom or whatever. Um, but that's why I stayed. But then when they got out of college, it was time for me to do something. You know, I don't want to drive 100 miles a day. I don't have to stay there. Um, and now that they're, they were out of college, it's like, well, we can afford to take a risk. And so that's when I started, you know, doing more consulting and, and building a business. You actually sound a lot like the coaching clients I work with, because I tend to work with entrepreneurial women in their 50s and beyond who are ready to, you know, launch some sort of new product or service, some sort of new revenue stream. 
And that phrase you were just saying, it's like, it's your turn. It's your time. You know, the kids are raised. They're, they're done. They're launched. <laughs> they're, they're out into the world doing what yeah. they're going to do. Jen, your best. And it's definitely, it's interesting because it's, it, it does sort of fall on gendered lines um, because most men are not thinking, okay, now, now the kids are out of the house. Now it's my turn. Um, it does sound like you had a lot of help at home compared to maybe other women in your generation, which is wonderful. It gave you some, some, some space and latitude. Um, but you had some freedom, like you said, some security, uh, the kids were out of school, you could take some risks. So the business idea seems become almost more plausible and it wasn't a huge shift. You were actually very entrepreneurial in the way you were working all those that's years. True. That's true. You definitely didn't want to be clocking in and out to go to the bathroom. No, so no, no. You wanted to have your own destiny and you were running your life that way as a professor. So it probably wasn't a ma- as much of a shift in that way. What was the shift? Was it a mental shift? Were there things about running a business that you, you know, needed to ask other people for support around, like you knew a lot. I mean, you were teaching this, but where did you need to kind of fill in your knowledge gap or maybe make a mental shift? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Um, For me, the hardest part is marketing. Now I taught some marketing courses. It's not about how to market. It's just time. Where do you spend your time? Because I love, like, I just, I'm, in, I'm involved in a big consulting, leadership consulting project now with a manufacturing firm two hours away, and they were having union issues, and now they want someone to come in and help rebuild the culture and uh, train leaders and uh, heal, do some healing. That is what I love to do. Now, that happened because of a connection, a network, so I feel very lucky because you know, that was like a referral. Referrals are great. <laughs> but having to go out and market myself and find, figure out, figure out ways to market myself, try to uh, navigate social media. That's the hardest part. Yeah, that's the difference probably between working with an institution, even in an entrepreneurial way, they were finding students for you, they were helping you market your classes, right? You didn't have to do that part. You just had to fulfill the work um, and get the college. You have to do more recruiting than you think. But I didn't mind that because, you know, I'm not out on the road recruiting. Students would come to me. Um, But the marketing as a, as a business owner, that's tough. Yeah. And I, and also it's a shift because it's about you. It's not about institutions. So there's also that piece around, I think, again, in a somewhat gendered socialized way, like how women feel about marketing themselves, um, self-promotion and like how it gets sort of a bad rap, even though it's about, you know, value proposition, um, not braggadocious. It feels self-centered. Yeah. It feels a little like narcissistic, like, you know, like I'm always trying to get something for me when that's, that's not really the case, but you have to stay visible. Um, so anyway, that's the hardest part for me. Yeah. It's interesting. It's a, it's a fine line because you want to be of service, but if people don't know what you can offer them, then you can't have the impact. Right. So there's a way in which you have to sort of put yourself out front. When I taught networking and fundraising, there was a line from the fundraising world that I would always share, which is that in fundraising, they say, if you're you know scared to sort of make the ask, you need to kick yourself out of the way and let the cause talk. 
And I feel like it's similar when it comes to networking and sales and promotion. It's it's not about you, but it's about this thing that you can offer and the way we might be able to support you. So yeah. um, it's, it's, a, it's an evolution, I think, that all of us yeah. have to go through. Well, that's a good point. So at what point did you really focus on this being a business? How long have you been in the business part of this? Well, so I left full-time teaching in 2011. So I've been at this for a while. And, you know, the first couple of years, it was just kind of getting set up. And, you know, I do, I rent an office space. So, you know, having an external office outside of the home um, and making some connections, joining some, you know, I try to meet some of my connections one-on-one to let them know what I'm doing and, um, and, you know, plus after a 30 year career, I kind of wanted to relax a little bit. I, I, I was teaching a graduate course. So I, I don't want to say, I mean, I, I think I would say I didn't work that hard at building the business the first couple of years, just mm-hmm. kind of getting established. And, and then, um, I actually hired Maria in Contrera to help me with some social, um, media and Maria's great. And then she, helped me get a local TEDx talk and um, which was great. It was local, but still, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would have gotten it without her coaching. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I've had some good referrals, made some connections, had some good referrals. And I really, it's kind of interesting because I'm finally sensing some momentum. Now, again, I don't really have to do this in a sense. I mean, you know, a lot of people in my stage of life would say, why work so hard? Why does it matter? Well, it is a calling. And I do feel like I have something of value to offer. And after teaching for 30 years, I'm having so much fun really helping people do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, anyway, I guess yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. No, you're at the proxis moment. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, you know, seeing, seeing all these ideas in action um, after them just being concepts in the ivory tower, it's very different and the real world implications of it also is probably really interesting to you. Right. Um, I love that you sort of just started to slowly establish yourself, your brand, who you served, but that you sought out some help. We connected through Dora Clark's recognized expert community. So some of the things you were just mentioning, like hiring Marine Contrera, um, you know, getting your handle on social media, getting the TEDx opportunity, uh, which by the way, no one knows whether it was local to you or not. They just know you did TEDx, <laughs> um, really? which is awesome for branding. I mean, this is all positioning yourself as someone who has recognized expertise and that's what's going to attract people to the work that you're doing. Are there specific ways you're nurturing that larger network? Because you, you've got this great career. A lot of people you've met both, you know, through Dora Clark's community, through your years of teaching, there's the folks you're really close to. And then there's the people you might see, I don't know, once a year at a conference or five years ago, you had a reason to work together, but not since, but you like each other. So how do you think about staying in touch and nurturing those kinds of connections, any habits, philosophies, practices? Sure. No, for me, LinkedIn is the best platform. Okay. In fact, it's kind of interesting until now you you might find this really odd, Robbie, but until I joined the Rex community with Dory Clark. I was very proud of the fact that I was not on Facebook. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I have to be, you know, I, I remember Marie, say, Marie saying, um, you know, this would be really good for you. Now you're on Facebook. I said, well, no, I'm not really on Facebook. Well, Jan, you're going to have to be on Facebook. So I was very proud of the fact that I was not on Facebook. 
So, but I would say for me, LinkedIn is the best platform. And I really have tried to connect with 30 years of former students. Um, I'm in a women's executive group that's local. And these are pretty high powered women in town. I feel fortunate to be in that. I joined the Rex group. I've made some really good connections there. People, and, and not even connections, but just inspire, you know, I find them inspirational. It's like, okay, well, they're doing that. Maybe I can do that. So, or if I have a question, I'm not hesitant. This kind of goes back to my rebel part, but I don't hesitate at all to reach out to someone and say, can we talk about that? Or can I, you know, or I'll respond to somebody else's question. Yeah, I may not have an answer, but I'll be willing to talk with you about that, have a conversation. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of social media, again, I'm still not wild about Facebook. I'm, I'm messing around a little bit with, uh, oh, I, I occasionally do stuff on Twitter, but I'm not a real Twitter person. Yeah. And I'm now doing some things on Instagram, but I might just use that as more of a creative outlet. Um, anyway. It sounds like you're thoughtful about, you know, staying in touch, supporting people, asking for help, offering help. I mean, I think this is partly just in your nature. It's probably how you got where you are in your career and your new business. And you're just doing that in support of your network. Yeah, I think, you know, again, I always say leadership is not a position and it's not a title. It's a relationship. Yeah. Because you can't have influence unless you have a relationship. And it's all about trust. And you can't trust people unless you know them. So it goes back to relationships. Yeah. So a year from now, uh, I'm going to try to remember that you and I had had this hot conversation. Okay. And I'm going to be like, Jan, do you remember a year ago I interviewed you? And I'm going to ask you a year from now, uh, what's noteworthy? What's What should we be celebrating for you? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? What will you be telling me a year from now that you, you were so excited well, about from this coming I year? I hope that I'm telling you that my book, Breadcrumb Legacy, How Great Leaders Live a Life Worth Remembering. I hope that I'm telling you that, you know, I've had several uh, keynote opportunities at major conferences or associations. And out of those presentations, I've been hired to do some workshops. Um, my One of my role models in life, Robbie, uh, is Dr. Ruth. Dr. Ruth, the sex therapist, or, you know, I don't know her official title, but Dr. Ruth is 94 years old. I've met her in person twice. Um, she, at 94, she's still speaking. She's still writing. Um, and that's what I hope to be doing at 94. Now I have, I have a long ways to go before 94. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm hoping that my book takes off. I hope it resonates with people. I hope it makes, you know, I hope people who read it, um, I hope it changes their life like it changed mine. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to celebrate all of that with you. How can people find you and follow your work? Okay. So like I said, LinkedIn is the best way to follow me. Um, my website is just uh, janfreed.com, two N's and two E's. If you go to my website, if you subscribe, uh, which is free, I have a monthly newsletter that people find interesting because it's kind of a quick read. But I'm, again, I'm sharing what I'm learning. And then um, if you subscribe, you would get my monthly podcast where I interview these thought leaders. Um, really? And I'm, I've learned a lot from Robbie here. So um, hopefully I'll, I'll make some improvements on my, my podcast. Um, and, and then if you take Training Magazine or if you Google Training Magazine, I have a, a, a regular column called Leading Edge. So those are probably the best ways. You know, go to my website. 
and that'd be great. Fantastic. We put all the links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Jan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm honored. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jan. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 328. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share how they overcame challenges in their way to becoming successful. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On The Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.